Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you, and I wanted to get into, uh, we've got a, a lot on the program today. Um, and, and in fact, after this first segment, I want to get into this whole issue of uh, how Reaganomics has basically screwed the middle class and, and is continuing to, and, and, and uh, we're gonna, Chauncey DeVega is going to be with us in the second hour. We're going to be talking about race in America. Uh, just a lot going on. But North Korea is kind of at the top of the list right now. The, the North Koreans, it, it, the, the, the North Koreans pulling back from this deal that Trump is trying to become the world's best deal maker on, where he's like, you know, anything Obama did, we're going to destroy, a.k.a. Iran. Uh, but I'm going to do something wonderful. Right? And then he brings in John Bolton. And it's, it's blowing up in his face, but you wouldn't know the real reason if you just watched cable news, uh, which is tragic. Uh, there's a great piece in the Washington Post today by Anna Fifield. Uh, excuse me. No, that's, that's the Yeah, yeah, by Anna Fifield uh, that lays it out. And Tim Chirac has written a great piece over at The Nation, thenation.com. He's an investigative journalist who spent part of his youth in South Korea and has been writing about North and South Korea since the late 1970s. He's the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Outsourced Intelligence. He writes about U.S.-Korea relations for the nation and for the Korea Center for Investigative Reporting. TheNation.com, of course, his personal website, Tim Schrock, S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K.com, and you can tweet him at Timothy S. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. Great to have you with us. So I remember a couple of weeks ago, when it was reported that John Bolton said that North Korea should have to follow the Libya model of denuclearization. And I went on the air and said, if, this, if, Tim, if Kim Jong-un hears that John Bolton said this, this whole thing's going to blow up in our faces. What has happened? And there you have it. It, it did blow up in their face. Uh, it, it is quite astonishing that uh, Bolton would be saying things like that because... The Libya model is exactly what North Korea is trying to avoid and actually built their nuclear weapons to prevent. 
uh, they saw that Libya under Gaddafi agreed to denuclearize completely, and then they saw that the U.S. and NATO uh, collaborated to overthrow his government and look at Libya today. And killed and him. So that was, and yeah, absolutely. And Kim killed does him. not want that uh, to happen. <laughs> no, and you know, the, the United States has been, you know, until recently, and these military drills they have with South Korea, uh, they have been, um, you know, practicing re practicing regime change and assassination during these military drills. Oh, really? So, you know, this is no joke for the North Koreans. And what really, you know, so Bolton's statements, uh, you know, obviously angered them. But also the, the drills that are taking place with South Korea have included these strategic U.S. weapons, such as F-22s and B-52s, that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And so they reacted to this, and they, you know, they, they're not just going to go into these negotiations and surrender. They return to assert themselves and say, all along, they have been seeking an end to what they consider the U.S. hostile policy. And one sign of this hostile policy are these exercises and the, and the uh, participation of B-52s and other kinds of aircraft and ships like that. Right. So they're making their assertion that, you know, if the U.S. just thinks they're going to go and lay down and surrender, uh, they've got another thing coming. These are actually negotiations coming up. Right. And, and the, I, I've, it's been bizarre watching the administration officials over the last couple of days talk about, uh, and I don't recall who it was on the Sunday shows, it, it might have been Bolton, um, who was saying, uh, probably you know, who was saying, you know, we're going to require a complete, you know, the complete destruction of all nuclear weapons and blah, 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 blah. And they were going through this whole, you know, happy talk routine. And I was watching that going, you know, Kim's not going to go along with that. I mean, you know, it was George W. Bush's axis of evil speech that got Kim started on his nuclear program in a big way. That was the point at which he realized after we invaded Iraq that, uh, you know, he was next if he didn't do something. And then this Bolton comment, what specifically, you know, feel free to comment on, on, on what I just said, but, but I'm, my, my specific curiosity is what, because uh, you just said something I was completely unaware of, what part of our military exercises, which we are currently at this minute as we speak, engaging in off the coast of North and South Korea, what part of those exercises specifically speaks to the assassination of Kim Jong-un or regime change? Well, what I was saying was that in the past, these exercises have included uh, assassination teams. Like a year ago, uh, during the exercises, uh, SEAL Team 6, the team that uh, assassinated Osama bin Laden, was on one of the U.S. submarines that participated in the, in the uh, exercises. Uh, they are not participating in this one. This is an air exercise. Mm -hmm. What North Korea has objected to are the B-52s, which, uh, as you know, can carry nuclear weapons, right. as well as F-22s, which are the most advanced U.S. fighter jets that also can carry nuclear weapons. They may not be having, they may not be deploying them at this moment, uh, but, you know, they certainly can in the future. And so it's a basically run through of p potential nuclear war. Right. And now, now you know, Kim, so that's that's the problem. Right. Kim knew, though. I mean, you know, it's uh, the, the, he's known for a year that these exercises were going to happen. Why would he go into these negotiations and then pull a plug based on these exercises? I mean, what I'm reading in The Washington Post anyway, 
is that his pulling the plug had virtually nothing to do with the exercises, although that's what's being reported in the American media. But instead, it had everything to do with John Bolton. And why is the media unwilling to call out John Bolton? Is it that they want to, you know, handle this administration with kid gloves so that they continue to have, you know, whatever they call access? Or I mean, what's going on here? Well, if you notice, you know, this morning already the White House, uh, according to CNN, has already downplayed Bolton's role and backed away from Bolton's uh, Libya policy, you know, his, his, his explanation that we want a Libya solution. Yeah, but he's still Secretary so, of State. Well, Bolton is the National Security uh, I mean, Advisor. Uh, but excuse me, saying, National Security you know, Advisor, yes, thank you. But they're saying that Trump is in charge, right. not Bolton. Uh, and that was a message to the North Koreans uh, that, you know, they still want to have these negotiations, they still want to have this summit meeting, and they want it to go ahead. And they, they want the negotiations to continue. Uh, I think it's actually both Bolton and the military exercises. Uh, you know, strangely enough, about five days ago, uh, I actually tweeted out uh, kind of a warning. I said, you know, these exercises are going on and there are B-52s participating as well as F-22s. And I expressed some surprise that the North Koreans hadn't said anything about it. And so I was not that surprised when I saw their statement yesterday initially uh, calling attention to these exercises. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think the, you know, the, I mean, the Washington Post story is, is basically correct, but I do think, you know, the exercises are a big part of this. Okay. They, they see this as part of the hostile policy that they want to end. We're talking with Tim Chirac, a, uh, investigative, uh, the investigative journalist who uh, lived in South Korea, has been writing about North and South Korea since the 70s, uh, author of Spies for Hire, among other, others. Uh, Tim, you're familiar with the, with the worldview, essentially, for lack of a better word of both the South Koreans and the North Koreans. From your ear to the ground, what, what are you, you know, President Moon of South Korea has worked very, very hard. I mean, he basically campaigned on making this happen and was elected president uh, based on, you know, some sort of rapprochement with North Korea. Please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is my understanding. And, and I'm, I'm curious what, what you're hearing from people in the South and, and what your sense is of what's going on in the North with regard to all of this. Well, what I hear from people in the South is, you know, they're very optimistic that they can work out a peace process with the North Koreans. And they've come, come quite far since January. Uh, you know, the Panmunjom Declaration that Kim Jong-un and President Moon Jae-in uh, agreed to uh, on April 27th was a far-reaching document that laid out a process to get there and, you know, talks about denuclearization. And they're very serious about scaling down the tensions and moving to back to this period of the, you know, the late 1990s and early 2000s when there was much more engagement between North and South Korea. And so, you know, the polls in South Korea show 85 percent support for Moon and his policies toward North Korea. It's astonishing, really, how much support he has on this. And the Korean people are very much behind it. I think in North Korea what's going on is that they have made the Korean people's, the what's it called, the Workers' Party, the, the ruling Communist mm -hmm. Party in North Korea, has made a fundamental decision to kind of shift their uh, line toward South Korea as well as the United States and, and, and have engagement. And I think that behind this is partly uh, Kim Jong-un's desire to really improve the economy of North Korea and, of course, you know, end the sanctions or, we, you know, at some point, end the sanctions, so his, so he can get foreign investment and uh, other other assistance yeah. for his economy. So I think that's a big part of it. 
Do you, do you think that China is is playing a role in this? And if so, are they, uh, you know, I, I can see where they would be concerned about the South, which is a U.S. ally being more influential, influential in the North. On the one hand, on the other hand, uh, as long as Kim's people are starving, that's destabilizing. People, Kim's people are not starving. Okay. okay. People were starving in the late 1990s. There is not mass starvation now like there was at okay. one point. And the, the economy has greatly recovered you know, since that time, which is not to say that you know, people are hungry or that, or that there's still a lot of problems in terms of you know, f- food distribution. Um, but you know, sanctions only only make that worse. But I mean, the the economy is actually you know doing quite well. Even people that pay very close attention to the North Korean economy sometimes express wonderment about all the construction going on of you know yeah. uh, ski resorts. So, so Tim, we have fifteen seconds. So, how does China think about it? what does China think about? China wants to have a peace process. China wants peace there in that area. Right. So that's so they would be encouraging something being worked out with the United States. Absolutely. They have been very much behind this. That's that's good to know. Tim Chirac, he he writes for The Nation, thenation.com. You can tweet him at Timothy S., his website, uh, Tim Chirac, T-I-M-S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K.com. Tim, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Great talking with you. And he's also the author of Spies for Hire, the secret work of outsourced intelligence. We'll be back. Stick around. So at the same time that 40% of American households cannot afford the basics, this is this article, Steve Levine writing, or Levine, I'm I'm guessing it's Levine, writing over at, he's a future editor at Axios and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And he teaches at Georgetown University. And he he wrote this piece for Axios. Uh, The headline, 40% in the U.S. can't afford middle class basics. He came up with the term, I, I believe it was him, he, 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 in, in any case, in his article, he calls it ALICE, A-L-I-C-E, Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. So these are people that have a job, but it's a low income job, and they don't yet, they have not yet had the opportunity to develop assets, or they did not, they were not born to a family with assets, like Donald Trump, you know, he was born a millionaire, uh, George W. Bush, born a millionaire, uh, you know. On and on it goes. So, so he, he writes, you know, even though we have high corporate profits, even though we have a booming stock market, more than 40% of U.S. households cannot pay the basics of a middle-class lifestyle. Uh, we have 16 million people officially under the poverty line. 34 million people, though, cannot pay rent, transportation, child care, and a cell phone. These are the economically forgotten, these Alice families. And uh, when you add them together, you get 51 million households. I think there's only like 130 million households in America. I mean, that, that, well, it's 40% of American households. That's astonishing. The New York Times today writing, this is uh, Austin Fracht, Fracht F-R-A-K-T, uh, writing, Medical Mystery, Something Happened to U.S. Health Spending After 1980. I don't know why the New York Times doesn't figure this out. I mean, three times in the article they talk about how it's a lack of competition that's causing this. And, of course, that's what Reagan did in 1982 is he stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act. So we saw this explosion of mergers and acquisitions. They started making movies about it, Wall Street. It's about the merger and acquisition mania that was unleashed when Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act. But apparently the New York Times is still baffled by it. 
America it was in the realm of other countries in per capita health spending throughout about 1980. Then it diverged. Health spending is a fraction of gross domestic product and life expectancy. In, the U in 1980, the U.S. was in the middle of the pack of peer nations in life expectancy at birth. But by the mid-2000s, we were at the bottom. We have the worst life expectancy at birth of the entire developed world right now. And then they ask the question, what happened? Turns out competition, lack of competition. University of Miami, uh, they say that the growth in U.S. healthcare spending coincides with the rapid growth of the markups of healthcare prices. This is not what one, this is what one would expect in markets with low levels of competition. And then they note American healthcare markets are highly consolidated. Surprise, surprise, right? And who's speaking about this? The so-called far left. This is what, this just boggles my mind. You know, I, 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 I tune on, I tune into MSNBC or CNN and I hear commentators talking about, oh, the far left, look out for the far left. We need middle of the road Democrats. You know, it's, well, the middle of the road Democrats had a really bad day yesterday. And the so-called far left did really well. But why are they calling it the far left? When what these people are calling for is, uh, you know, raising taxes to the point that we can actually pay for what we're spending. That's, that's an old fashioned so-called conservative value. Dwight Eisenhower did that, number one. <laughs> Frankly, George Herbert Walker Bush did that. So number one, raising taxes. Number two, universal background checks to buy guns. How's that far left? Number three, decriminalizing pot. That's the majority of America. And number four, a national health care system. That's, you know, 70% of Americans want this. This isn't the far anything. This is the middle of America, but the headline by James Holman in today's Washington Post. The far left is winning the Democratic Civil War. I mean, I'll take it, but, you know, in Nebraska, liberal social worker and political neophyte who built her campaign around Medicare for All scored a shocking upset in a Democratic primary to take on the Republican Don Bacon. Kara Eastman, 45, beat former Congressman Brad Ashford, 68, in an Omaha-Eric district the National Democrats believe they could pick up in November. Now, I would add... Uh, Eastman advocated for universal background checks to buy guns, raising taxes, and decriminalizing marijuana. She said, I'm tired of hearing Democrats don't have a backbone, that we don't stand for anything. That changes now. And by the way, the DCCC had supported Brad, Brad Ashford, the, the Democrat who lost the race. In fact, he had once been that congressman. He had been the Democratic congressman from that area. But he was a so-called middle-of-the-road Democrat, which actually means Right. It, it actually means corporatist. I'm, I'm not, I don't even want to call it right wing. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, no, we shouldn't do national health care. That's too radical. Oh, no, we shouldn't have background, you know, instant universal background. That's too radical. Decriminalize marijuana. We can't have that. Raising taxes. Oh, we'd, we'd lose the election. All those things are wrong. I don't know that Brad Ashford actually said all those things, but those are the broad positions that seem to be endorsed by the DCCC with these candidates that they're coming up with. In Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley, this is where Charlie Dent re retired. The, uh, the, the local, this, this guy, uh, John Morganelli, who's a, you know, a Democrat, he was the front runner, he's the local district attorney, he's well known. He lost his primary to Susan Wilde, why? Well, you know, the, the Democrat who, you know, the, 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 the Democrat who lost the race, quote, opposes abortion rights and opposes sanctuary cities. In Philadelphia, Rachel Reddick, 33-year-old Navy, Navy veteran, she was endorsed by Emily's List, but she's, quote, a centrist. 
She lost the Democratic primary to, to, uh, to, quote, proud progressive Scott Wallace. By the way, the centrist Democrat, Rachel Raddick, previously, up until last year, had been registered as a Republican. The guy who won, by the way, Scott Wallace, is the grandson of Henry Wallace, Franklin Roosevelt's vice president, the one that I quote all the time, talking about American fascism. And his slogan was, together we can make America sane again. Make America sane again. I love it. Statewide in Pennsylvania, the, in, the incumbent lieutenant governor, Mike Stack, was running to, 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 you know, to take on, uh, to, to, you know, continue being the, the, the attorney general, excuse me, the lieutenant governor. And he lost to a guy named John Fetterman, a small town mayor with a bristly beard and tattoos on both his arms. What did Fetterman campaign on that took down a so-called centrist Democrat? Universal health care and legalizing pot. And now he's the party's candidate. In Pittsburgh, two card-carrying members of the Democratic Socialists of America won. 68, 65% of the vote, 68% of the vote. And, which is, and here's this bizarre headline from, uh, the Wash, from Huffington Post. Socialist-backed candidates, sweet Pennsylvania State House primaries. No, it's Democratic Socialist. There's a difference. It continues. In Idaho, in the gubernatorial primary, the woman who won, uh, Paulette Jordan, could become the first Native American governor. What did she build her campaign around? Expanding Medicaid, relaxing marijuana laws, reducing incarceration, and cutting corporate tax loopholes, and protecting more public lands. She got 58% of the vote. People love these things. Here in Oregon, liberals toppled an entrenched Democratic incumbent. The existing Senator Rod Monroe, he was crushed. Six, he only got 25% of the vote. He was running against Shima Fagan, a civil rights attorney. She got 62% of the vote. And this guy who, who lost Rod Monroe, Senator Rod Monroe here in Oregon, he, he raised $385,000, most of it from the real estate industry, and spent most of it. And then another group, a group largely funded by the real estate industry, also raised more than $360,000 on his behalf. So he, he massively outspent this progressive, and he lost. And another one, in, the state house, in a state house primary, the establishment favorite, a county commissioner who was endorsed by the retiring representative, lost to a child welfare worker. After he said the state of Oregon should consider requiring employees to contribute to the public pension fund. This is the, the existing, uh, the establishment favorite, the county commissioner. So it's like, you know, stuff is happening. Things are changing. And that's a good thing. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? Uh, hello, Tom. Uh, and um, congratulations to John Fetterman. I did vote for him and I did... Uh, contribute uh, donations to him, and um, it did seem like a long shot with um, at least four or five different uh, people in the primary, but we, we managed to do it, yeah. and we managed to win progressives down ballot, and, you know, Pennsylvania is changing. You know, the Democratic Party needs to look at Pennsylvania and, and wake, wake, the, wake the hell up, basically. Like, this, this, this is like a, this should be like a shot across the bow for yep. the Democrats that, uh, yep. you know, we're sick of this. 
Well, just just the Bernie phenomena should have been a shot across the bow. It should have it should have told the Democratic Party that that Democrats nationwide want to return to the FDR LBJ New Deal Great Society roots of the Democratic Party. It's really simple, and there's nothing radical about that. There's nothing far left about that. That is the core of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party lost its way in the late in the in the late 80s and early 90s when it embraced you know big banks, big insurance companies, big pharma. Uh, you know, as the so-called clean industries that could replace the loss of union support as the unions were being destroyed by Reagan and, and Reagan's followers. And it was a huge mistake. And the Democratic Party needs to get as far away from that mistake as they can, as quickly as they can, and, and, and go back to their roots. You know, Democrats want a real Democratic Party. Harry Truman said it. He said, you know, if, if, a, voter, if, a, if a voter is presented with a Republican versus with a Democrat who behaves like a Republican versus a real Republican, they'll pick the real Republican. You know, which has happened in race after race. But if there's a real progressive, a real Democrat in the race, they'll pick the real Democrat. So anyhow, Jared, we just have a, a, a little less than a minute here before we hit a break. You wanted to talk about North Korea? Uh, yes. Um, I wanted to talk. Uh, Putin said specifically that uh, the Korean, North Koreans would rather eat grass than, than give up their nuclear weapons. And I think that Trump-picking Bolton is a clear sign that the hostilities between the U.S. and North Korea are not going to end because North Korea is not going to give up their nuclear weapons and the sanctions are not going to be lifted on them. That's right. So this is this this so I, this massive incompetence on the part of Donald Trump hiring a, a Fox News right wing whack job for pretty much everything. You know, every job that he wants filled of, of any substance, he first turns to Fox News and goes, hey, can I get somebody from Fox? This is dangerous stuff. Jared, thank you for the call. Very well said. This is very dangerous stuff. It is screwing up what's going on in North Korea. His desperate need for cash, uh, you know, is screwing up his trade stuff with China. And now you've got, you know, ZTE and all this stuff going on, uh, you know, because apparently because he wants a $500 million for the Indonesian project. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. And it turns out it's not just $500 million. That's, that's from the Chinese government. There's another $500 million from a Chinese bank. We're talking about a billion dollars being given to Trump. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Rand Paul. He, the, Rand Paul is so pathetic. You know, I mean, it's like his, his normal shtick is... I'll be the tie-breaking vote, right? Because, you know, the, in all the committees on, in, in the Senate, it's like, you know, 13 Republicans, 12 Democrats, nine Republicans, eight Democrats. I mean, it's always one more Republican, right? And so any one Republican can be the tie-breaking vote or the, the tie-destroying vote. And so Rand Paul is always, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I have some questions. I'm not sure about this. And then at the last minute, he always caves. It's just, you know, what's the old joke? The most dangerous place in Washington, D.C. is between Rand Paul and a camera. Uh, And now he's like, you know, well, did Gina Haspel and the CIA spy on Donald Trump? I mean, it's a made for Fox News, uh, you know, moment. It's it's pathetic. Rand Paul, you know, his father was a cartoon character. He's not he doesn't even rise to the level of cartoon character. It's really tragic. Will in Doswell, Virginia. Hey, Will, what's on your mind? Hey, how's it going today, Tom? Good. Um, What's up? I just want um, so specifically, I can say in my my region in, in Hanover, Virginia, I actually attended the um, the the Democratic the the um, the Democratic uh, meeting. Um, and do you, do you have uh, caucuses I mean, instead of primaries? Uh, 
we have primaries. Okay. Uh, I think the primaries in June. Oh, I see. Uh, but oh, I so met, you went to the party uh, meeting where the where the candidates were yeah. presenting themselves. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I met the candidate, and one of them was really young. And uh, actually, two of the candidates that I'm aware of support single payer, right. and that was really you know because we're not like, you know, we're not uh, a a hugely progressive part. So I mean, I think there's there's kind of an, a groundswell of of, uh, you know, people that, you know, are more and more coming to the position in, in terms of uh, terms of the Democratic Party. And yeah. I think that's well, no longer, I, you know, the, you know, the day that the Democratic Party institutionally and the day that the majority of Democrats embrace two simple principles, free health care, free education. The day that that happens, the Democratic Party is never going to lose another election. And and I, I hear all this hand wringing about, oh, that's not centrist. You've got to be a centrist yeah. to win an election. Republicans won't vote for you. Republicans aren't going to vote for you anyway, number one. Number two, oh, that brings out all the people, all the, the middle. And number three, how can you dare call that centrist when, or, or, or far left, excuse me, when that's what Canada has? That's what every country yeah. in Europe has. That's what Costa Rica has, for God's sake. I mean, this is, you know, that's what Mexico has. It's, it's I mean... Yeah. This is far left. This is not far left. Far left is shut down the corporations and have the state take over General Motors. That's far left. Yeah. Nobody is supporting that. I, you know, it just makes me I crazy. Just, I just wish someone would primary one of my senators because I'm not very happy with them. It's coming. Uh, but Tim it's Kane coming. It's, and, I'm telling you, it's coming. Will, I want to get another caller in here before the end of the hour. Thank you for the call. David in Columbus listening to WGRN. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, the primary for me was frustrating. Um, Ohio has a policy where you can't become a leader in the Democratic Party unless you're elected. And they get these guys in there that are just, I don't know. Fossils? Border, borderline Republicans. Yeah. But I would like to, and, and uh, Dennis Kucinich ran a good campaign. He, he was out there uh, connecting with people. Even the New York Times supported him. But then when it comes time for the election, the Democratic Party runs these little flyers that have uh, Cordray on it. Right. And um, it's not, they should have had both candidates on there if they want to be fair. That's the kind of stuff that you know, drives me crazy because I feel like Kucinich was standing for basic issues, you know, health care. Um, well, so is Cordray. Um, I mean, uh, as far as I can tell, the position, the policy positions between Cordray and Kucinich were, uh, you know, the differences were nominal, weren't they? Well, Cordray uh, opposed uh, gun control. He he actually defeated a um, assault ban uh, weapons uh, uh, in Columbus and Cleveland when he was attorney general. But that and, was uh, then, and this is now. I, my my understanding is that the platform that he ran on was essentially the same one as Dennis Kucinich's, which included you know reasonable gun control. I, you know, years ago. Uh, you could run and say, oh, you know, sort of the Bernie Sanders position, you know, uh, leave it to the states. I don't think that that's viable anymore. I, I would be astonished if Cordray ran on that position. And that's not well, my understanding of what happened. I think he's um, pushed to be more. Yeah, of course. That's the whole that's the whole point of politics is, is you know, push your push your candidates and your elected officials. But but um, Kucinich has a record, you know. No, I agree. And and Dennis Kucinich is a good guy. Dennis Kucinich is a personal friend. I you know, I like I love Dennis Kucinich. Uh, and and in the area in uh, in his old congressional district, in the areas where people knew him well, he did really, really well in the election. 
but you know, Cordray took the state. I, you know, I don't want to relitigate the, any of these primaries, David, but you know, I get your point. I think the DNC also should back off. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the X-Chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Let's check in with our friend Chauncey DeVega, a political essayist and commentator, contributor to Salon, host of the Chauncey DeVega Show podcast. ChaunceyDeVega.com is the website. You can tweet him at Chauncey DeVega. I just retweeted your tweet to Chauncey saying you'd be on the program. So glad to have you back with us. Thanks for joining us. It is. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. You wrote an absolutely brilliant piece for Salon. I read the uh, reprint of it. I don't recall if it was Alternet or Raw Story or wherever it was, uh, titled, A Scientist Explains the Psychological Insecurity That Drove White Voters to Trump. Uh, Can you summarize that for us, please? Yeah, it's a wonderful and very, very important article by Diana Muntz, who's a political scientist, a very senior political scientist. And what she does is she takes on this tired zombie idea that it was white, working-class economic anxiety that drove Trump and buoyed Trump to the White House. And what she does is she actually looks at a series of interviews over about four years with voters. And what she discovers is, as you know, as your listeners likely know, it was not about economic insecurity. It was about status anxiety, nativism, and racism. Those are the key elements that drove Trump into the White House and that motivated his voters. It was not the quote-unquote white working-class economic anxiety because, again, as other data tells us, the average Trump voter in the primaries, they made about 72 grand, which is significantly higher than the national average. Right, and in fact, uh, the, uh, you pointed out in your article that that rally in Michigan that Trump did, wasn't it like the average income in that town was 100000 bucks? Yep, $100,000 at that hateful rally where he was screaming about Hispanics, where he was talking about, quote-unquote, illegal immigration. And you look around that predominantly white audience with a few black and brown folks, many of them who were paid to be there, and they're ranting and they're railing. And the reality of it is these are not economically distressed, lost Americans. This is not the forgotten America. And we talked about this a few, I think, last year, actually. One of the biggest problems with this argument about, quote-unquote, white working-class economic anxiety and Trump or working-class anxiety is where are the black and brown folks who are being hit by globalization? Where are the black and brown folks who are part of the working class? Why didn't they support him? Well, the answer is obvious because his candidacy was based on white supremacy. Right. So if, yeah, if, if, if he was selling 
If his sales pitch was, I'm going to lift up working people, then working people, regardless of race, would have supported him. And that's not how it shook out. What it shook out was basically white people supported him and, and wealthy white people at that. Not rich white people, but, you know, way above the, the median for the middle class. We're talking with Chauncey DeVega. Uh, Chauncey, the, you, you mentioned class anxiety is the first of the three reasons that white people were voting for Trump. Uh, I, I'm guessing that a lot of people don't know what that means. Well, basically, it's a way of talking about status anxiety. So, or status anxiety, the, excuse me. Yeah, yeah if you, you remember of the dominant group, culturally, politically, economically in America, that's white folks. White folks control every major social, political, economic institution in this country. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't poor white brothers and sisters and struggling white brothers and sisters, right? But as a group, you look at society, and white Americans are terrified. We have a lot of data about this, right, about feeling obsolescent, feeling especially white Christians, that the quote-unquote culture has bypassed them. You know, during the campaign, when Trump was asked when he wants to make America great again, what year does he want to go back to, I think he said 1953. Well, that's a lie about the past, this empty nostalgia, an era when gays and lesbians were forced in the closet, black and brown folks couldn't vote, women were subjected to the whims of their husbands, women were treated as second-class citizens. So status anxiety is really a way of saying, we're the top dog, we're going to stay in control, and we're going to support Trump no matter what. And that's very, very challenging for Democrats, liberals, and progressives to understand. And it poses a, a real challenge in terms of electoral politics, because Trump's voters, they're in love with him. I've said this before. It's libidinal. They see him as a hero. And you can't make rational appeals to them because they're deeply tied to him in terms of an existential anxiety about power. Yeah, there's there's a transition that's happening that I think that uh, with regard to status anxiety, that white people broadly are aware of and that is being amplified certainly by Fox and right wing hate radio. Um, you know, I know of organization, I know specifically of a nonprofit organization right now that's seeking to expand its board and they're specifically looking for minorities. So basically white men need not apply. Um, I had a conversation a year or so ago with a television network that said, you know, we're not interested in any more old white white guys. You know, we're looking for people of color. Those kinds of conversations are, maybe rattling is, is the wrong word. I don't know if it's too strong or not strong enough, but those are the kind of things that are necessary. They're important. We've got to undo the damage that has been done, you know, 400 years of, of, of racism in the United States. And yet, I guess there's no and yet, but, and I'm not sure where to go with this other than, you know, how do, we, how do we handle this? How do we handle this in a way that doesn't blow up in our faces, Johnson? Well, one of the things we learned in this research, and again, Dr. Muntz's article, and there's so many others. I mean, I encourage all the quote-unquote talking heads on TV to actually go out and read some journal articles, actually go talk to social scientists who've been studying these issues, not looking for hot takes. One of the inoculants against Trumpism is improving our educational system. Looking at the data, what do we know? Folks who are more educated, well, they're more tolerant. They're more embracing of cosmopolitanism. They're less prone to anxiety about racial diversity. So I think we need to fix our school system. And here's another um, real serious challenge in this moment. And this is also a function of a backlash against Barack Obama, because a lot of this is symbolic politics. So if you grow up in a, you're a white man of a certain age, you were told I can go get a job with a high school degree, and I'd be able to have a house, I'd have 2.2 kids, I'd have a car, I'd have all these weeks off of vacation. Yep. And then lo and behold, you know something is wrong with the economy. We're all feeling it. You know something is wrong with, I would suggest, a deep sociopathy, a sickness in our culture, the culture of cruelty. 
And then you turn on Fox News and you're told, you know what? And this goes back, you know, President Johnson talked about this. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the psychological wages of whiteness. So instead of being told, hey, it's the plutocrats, it's the 1% that are robbing everybody blind, you're told, guess what? It's those black people. It's yep. those brown people. It's those immigrants. They want so your you job. Have a whole yeah. Lot, yeah, you have a whole lot of folks who looked at Obama and they were jealous. They're hateful. He's a symbol of success, intelligence, and refinement. And then Trump comes along who represents everything wrong with America. But guess what he tells you? I'm going to make America white again. And he plays on their insecurities. So, no, there's no easy solution, but we have to talk about a true we the people democracy. We've got to fix these schools, and we've got to bring people together. Yeah, I, I agree. The, uh, I, over the weekend, I was listening to a, a, a program on the radio, uh, or a podcast, I guess it was, uh, and it, it was a, a neurologist, a brain scientist, and he was talking about how it takes uh, 10 milliseconds uh, ten one-thousandths of a second for our brain to detect that someone is consequentially different from us. And, uh, you know, uh, race is one of, the, one of the way up on the list, that race and gender way up on the list of things that we recognize before we recognize that we've recognized them. And they used the example of uh, this soldier who just died uh, last week who had been the guy who's, who caught Lieutenant Callie murdering people in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And how he had felt that he was that, that Callie and the other uh, uh, soldiers, American soldiers, were his people. And when he saw this massacre going on, he flipped. And he identified with the Vietnamese as his people and was willing to, to uh, threaten to shoot Callie and his buddies if they didn't stop killing these people. And they stopped. And that led to the whole thing being unraveled. And it was a fascinating conversation about how we define who's with us and who's outside of us, outside of our group. And given how rapidly these decisions, or not decisions, these, these analyses are made at a, at a level that's way below consciousness and, and certainly below, below conscious control, it raises an, a really interesting question, Chauncey, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, about how do we, how do we change the, the perception of white people in America that black and brown people are not an us to them? into we're all Americans here, we're all us. How do we do that? Well, I think we're in this country right now, there's a striking lack of moral leadership, period. Um, and if you had real moral leadership, you would have folks coming out saying, you know what, as I said, we're in this together, so we the people democracy. Look to your black and brown and white brothers and sisters who are going through the same things. Don't give in to the petty fascism and authoritarianism of Donald Trump and the Republican Party, because you hit on something there. And in terms of thinking about the psychology, what you're also talking about is social capital, right? A type of bonding capital that's tribal, where it's my tribe, my tribe, my tribe, right? And Fox News and the right-wing hate media, and this will be provocative and scary to some, they have been, for the last few decades, perfecting a language, going back to Newt Gingrich and before, it's called eliminationism. What? Democrats and liberals? Well, they're the enemy. They're vermin. They're snakes. They're libtards. So when you hear Trump talk about snakes, when you hear him use violent rhetoric to talk about non-white people, and you see his voters responding to this, well, that's signaling to that same sort of primitive part of our brain. We have a lot of research about brain science that shows that the conservative brain is more fearful, it's more binary. In many ways, it's more threat-oriented. Conservatives tend to uh, fixate on negative um, negativity, and they also have deep, deep, deep anxieties about death. So I wish I could tell you what a simple solution would be, but I would say we need better moral leadership. We need to, said, to fix the schools. And here's another data point where we talk about what we know, not conjecture. Looking at the last election, Trump did really well not in communities that were racially diverse, but in white communities that were not really, quote-unquote, suffering or being, quote-unquote, invaded by, quote-unquote, illegal aliens. 
Right. Folks who learn to live next door to each other and see people as human beings, well, they get along fine for the most part. Yeah. But if you can have a racially authoritarian president and a racially authoritarian right-wing media and political party telling people to be afraid, that doesn't end well. And there are some serious echoes in this country of what we saw in Germany in the 30s. This country is going – this is not going to end well, and I've been trying to sound the alarm. Yeah, I agree, and, I, and, I, and I've been uh, as well. And, and we just have a minute before we're going to hit a hard break here, Chauncey. Um, so, so it seems that, that the idea that yeah, – I mean, we tried this with, with busing back in, the, back in the 60s and 70s of, of bringing people together by, by way of social engineering. Um, it doesn't seem to be working. In fact, we're more segregated in some ways than we were then. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, any specific suggestions? I mean, you know, media, it seems like our media loves to amplify our differences rather than our similarities, for example. Well, well, in the busing is a great example in the sense that, you know, folks talk about, quote, unquote, social engineering. Well, all societies are involved in social engineering, right? Sure. They should come together and establish rules. A lot of those policies weren't followed through on, period. They were stopped. We didn't, you know, we hit the 1960s and we had a series of laws that were passed that, you know, one of my favorite sociologists, Joseph Fagan, he very famously said, you know what, I don't need any new laws. I want you to enforce the laws on the books, the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Voting Rights Act, which are all under siege by Donald Trump and the Republicans, by the way. So I say enforce the Constitution and enforce the laws. Can you make people treat each other well? No. But you know what? We can pass effective laws. We can create opportunities in the commons for people to come together. And we can enforce laws that break down segregation in housing and lending and in the banking industry and fix our schools. Right. And tragically, we've got as a result of, uh, you know, 13 of the last 17 Supreme Court justices being reported, uh, appointed by Republicans, we've got a Supreme Court that, that delights in tearing apart the Voting Rights Act. Chauncey DeVega, chaunceydevega.com. Chauncey, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's always great to get your thoughts and insights. I appreciate it. Welcome back. Brenda in Newport News, Virginia. Hey, Brenda, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I want to thank you for everything you're saying today and, and especially the, the conversation that you just had with Chauncey Vega. I swear I was like in my bed thinking I need to pull my covers over my head till November because there's just so much to process. It's just crazy out there. But I, I really think that it would be great when you mentioned that what that one candidate was saying, make America sane again. Right. I, think, I think that's the battle cry we all need to take up. And I think that those, those things that you were pointing out that the progressive candidates are pointing on, I think we all need to get active in the Democratic tent, push them toward that, that area. And if they're not supporting them, we need to support the candidates who are saying that. Yes. That's what I, I mean, we all feel helpless right now. Like, okay, this is going to heck. We got to do something. I agree. I agree. Very well said, Brenda. Very well said. Thank you. Uh, Tony in Los Angeles. Hey, Tony, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I just called because as being a woman of color, being a black woman or whatever, we've done everything. To try to make things better, mm-hmm. Albert Einstein called it the disease of white people. Yeah, most people don't know he was, Racism. Uh, you know, really, yeah, adamant about race relations or whatever. And it's funny you never hear about that, huh? That yeah. he's a genius, but oh, a genius shouldn't be talking about racism. Yep. <laughs> and the bottom line is, white people—it's in the DNA of Americans to be racist. I don't—we don't need another damn study. You just had. Some guys tried to lynch some brothers the other day. The police killing black men like uh, the party going west. So, I mean, we don't need any more studies. We know what has to happen in the liberal, so-called liberal white people that have been silent 
have to stand up and do something. There's nothing else I can do. I'm a victim of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what black people are getting to the point is, damn fighting you and trying to beg and trying to ask. And to, no, what, what more and more people of color are going to do is separate. Let you all do what you want to do, and we will build our own community separately. And that's basically what it's going to come down to. Because anytime, just like you just said, they were willing to impeach Bill Clinton over a blowjob. However, this fool 45 can get away with everything. And then it's like people are like, but we just don't understand. It's, it's supporting white supremacy, period. Yep. That is so hard. It's not hard. And, and white privilege out? on an ongoing basis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, constantly. And what white people have to do is, is figure out that your silence is your, you're being complicit. Amen. Tony, I got to run. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you on the line. With us is Jamal Abdi, the Vice President for Policy at the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, the Executive Director of NIAC Action. NIAC.org is the website. Uh, welcome, uh, excuse me, Jamal, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, what is, you know, we've, we've been getting all this uh, uh, news about, uh, you know, what's going on with Trump's efforts with regard to North Korea. And it seems to be blowing up in his face, particularly once he started saying that he wanted to have a deal uh, as robust as what we had with Libya. That worked out really well for Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, but, uh, you know, it looks like the deal that he was proposing with North Korea was not even, you know, as good as what we had with Iran. Where are we at right now and where is Iran at right now? We are now um, in the middle of what could become a, a trade war with Europe um, over whether the U.S. is going to basically issue sanctions against European companies that continue to do business with Iran under the deal. And this is the, I, I don't know if you call it an irony or what you would call it, but when Trump announced that we were withdrawing from the deal and snapping the sanctions back on Iran, None of those sanctions are actually on Iran. The U.S. already had, even under the nuclear deal, has a total embargo against Iran. Um, there's, there's basically no business that the U.S. and Iran can actually do. The sanctions that snap back are sanctions against Europe and the other parties to the deal, the secondary sanctions. Right. Companies. And now the question is. Isn't it companies in Europe that, are doing, that want to do business, or is it, is it countries themselves as well? Right, right. The companies, the companies right. in Europe. Okay. And so now the question is, is Europe, I mean, they're, they're talking the talk. Uh, saying they're going to stand up to the U.S., take measures to protect their companies, to ins- you know make sure that they can continue to honor the deal. But who is willing to sort of push the hardest? Uh, how how far is this going to go? Given how Donald Trump seems to prefer uh, appearance over actual policy, how, how you know it's flash rather than substance, is it possible that the Europeans, if they just kind of kept quiet about it? Could could say to Trump, you know, okay, you know, we'll we'll kind of go along with, we'll pretend we're going along, but just, you know, we're not going to shove it in your face. We're not, you know, like like Kim just did this morning. We're not gonna we're not gonna you know poke you in the nose about this. What do you think? The problem here is that it really, as you pointed out, it is up to these companies and it's up to these banks to continue to facilitate these transactions. Um, and so even the signaling 
by the Trump administration, even before they announced they were leaving the deal. This signaling that the United States was potentially going to start sanctioning these companies and these banks created such high risks that a lot of these companies, a lot of these banks, already were deciding, you know what, the risk is too high, the, the benefit is not there, we're going to start getting out of Iran or, or not going into Iran. And as a result, um, you know, Iran was not really reaping the benefits of the deal, which is why, you know, even before Trump made this decision, Just because of his rhetoric. the deal was on life support, because of his rhetoric, because of the uncertainty that that created. And so some people, you know, like the, some of the uber hawks who want to start a war with Iran or, you know, want to kill the deal, they're actually upset that Trump did this because, really, we had this facade that the U.S. was in the deal, but the rhetoric and the uncertainty was making it so that Iran was bound to the constraints of the deal, but not necessarily getting all the benefits. And now that's going to become even more profound. Hmm. Interesting. The, uh, the Israelis, I, I'm not sure if it was the country itself or if it was just some of the commentators that I was uh, hearing, but the uh, day before yesterday, when, when the, or two days ago, when the embassy was opened and uh, Ivanka and Jared were giving their, their little speeches, you know, at the same time, uh, Palestinians were being shot, killed, dead, murdered, uh, unarmed Palestinian children uh, by Israeli troops, snipers. And the, the, some of that blame was, oh, Iran and their agents, you know, and their, their proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas, are, are uh, you know, bragging about how they're pushing these, uh, these uh, children into the front lines so that they can get killed. You know, basically, you know, blame it on Iran, blame it on Hezbollah and Hamas. Uh, to what extent is there, is there something to that? Well, this is, this is really the reality that we're now confronting, which is that this administration is making a hard pivot back to the status quo a pre-nuclear deal, when the Middle East was sort of being divided between Iran and this so-called axis of resistance, you know, Iran and, and Syria and to some extent Russia, versus the United States and its allies, the Saudis, the GCC states, um, and Israel. And that dynamic, it's a zero-sum dynamic. It's, you know, I win, you lose. There was really, there was no, it, it was a, you know, it was, it was a soft war. The nuclear deal was supposed to actually start to reset that and create a system where there was actually mutual benefits, um, potentially even, you know, economic ties could be envisioned in the future and uh, increased diplomacy so that you actually had some positive sum uh, framing for, for the Middle East. We are now... We have now left that framework, and so now it is being reduced to Iran versus Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. And I think seeing the, the presentation that you know, the, the Jerusalem embassy mirrored with what was happening in Gaza, and then the administration not even, you know, not even pushing back against you know, the, the use of force and the indiscriminate killing, it really shows how hard we have now pivoted the United States to standing with Israel and, and our other allies at the expense of actually being able to say no to them or being able to check some of the things they do because it is in U.S. interest to do that. Now our interests are essentially whatever is dictated by, by the Israelis or the Saudis. This seems uh, you know, rather grim. Do you, uh, we're talking with Jamal Abdi, the VP of, uh, for policy at, the, at NIAC. Do you, do you have any optimism? <laughs> Are there any silver linings here? I mean, it's, it, I, I think the, the optimism, actually, the, it was the, uh, the, the head of the European Union's uh, uh, political wing uh, issued a, a tweet today that said, you know, at least what has happened is now revealing the true nature of the Trump administration. Now the, the cards are out. There's no fiction that, um, you know, 
Trump or the, or the U.S. under Trump is going to be a neutral arbiter, uh, is going to be a party to this deal. The cat's out of the bag. We now know what we're dealing with, and now hopefully that means that um, the rest of the world, Congress, voters, and others can actually respond to this so that we can actually confront these challenges instead of being sort of led along and gradually uh, brought to the brink without knowing it. So this, this you know, they're, they're, I guess that's, you know, transparency and, and honesty are general, generally upsides. Do you see any movement, you know, the, the Europeans are, are basically saying to the, to the United States, we don't want to go along with your pulling out of the deal. We want to maintain the deal. Um, do you see any initiatives? I mean, it, it, it sounds from, you know, the, the beginning of our conversation that they have not yet quite figured out how to deal with this. Um, do you see any initiatives beyond simply figuring out how to deal with it, or, or is, is that really the only option that the Europeans have, is either defy the United States or capitulate to the United States? So there's no middle ground? I think it, it's, there, there's a question of, um, how, you know, if the Euro- Europeans can be united and can put measures in place, so um, that maybe they put measures in place to protect their companies and potentially, you know, can get the United States to agree we're not going to go after these entities, sort of find a, you know, a, a, a middle ground. That is potentially an option. We saw this actually when the United States first started issuing these secondary, you know, these extraterritorial sanctions that, you know, punished Europe for dealing with Iran. We saw this in the 90s. Um, it was actually as Iran was starting to try to do some outreach to the U.S. and the West and open up uh, investment in its oil fields uh, and with the intent of granting granting the licenses to U.S. companies potentially, uh, the U.S. slapped that down and then actually issued sanctions to block French the Total from uh, investing in Iran. And uh, France and the Europeans actually responded by taking the, U- the U.S. to the WTO, uh, really, you know, put some pressure, and essentially what the U.S. did was backed off and signaled, okay, we are not going to go after you for this. Um, and then for another 10 or 15 years, the U.S. actually didn't enforce those sanctions. So I guess that is potentially a compromise that we could arrive at, but I think right now it's sort of a, it's a time for bold measures by Europe, because at this point, I think Trump thinks that Europe is going to cave to whatever he says, given the spectacle before he killed the deal of Macron and Merkel sort of coming and begging him to not kill the deal. Yeah, and and Boris Johnson too. I mean, you know, the UK sent yeah. their guy too. Yep. Yep. There you go. There you go. Jamal Abdi, the VP for Policy at the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, Executive Director of NIAC Action. NIAC.org is the website. You can tweet him at J A B D I. Jamal, thank you. It's great talking. Thank, thank you very much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. It is uh, 53 minutes past the hour. Will in Chicago. Hey, Will, thanks for listening to uh, SiriusXM. What's up? How are you? Great program, as always. Thank you. But, Tom, I was just calling to comment on the fact that, you know, uh, poor white people versus poor black people, or just poor people in general. You know, white folk or white people, when they're, um, they, they don't understand that, you know, the social program that you're talking about, Medicare, aid to dependent children, food stamps, so just by virtue of the population alone, common sense tells you that there are more white people on those programs than black and Hispanic people. Yep. That's just common sense. And so I don't, and they don't seem to understand that. And so they, and the problem is, as long as you make the, the rich white people, they don't care anymore for the poor white than they do for black. But the problem is, they will make those white people, the poor white people, think that they are better 
than the black people. So that's how they get their votes, and that's how they get them inclined to go along and agree with them. Well, that's what Lyndon Johnson said about, you know, in, in 1963 about uh, Republican strategy. He said that if, if uh, the Republican strategy is if you can convince a, a, the lowest white man that he's better than the highest black man, he'll let you pick your pocket, pick his pocket, and, you know, forever. And he, and he was right. He was right. And yeah. The only other thing, Tom, I, want, I wanted to answer. But, but Will, let me just, let me just if, if, before we get to that, if I may, real quick. Um, you started out your sentence with poor white, poor white people, poor black people, and a lot of a lot of sentences get started out that way. I'm not I'm not going after you here, but on on uh, you know in, in conservative media and in fact broadly in the media, they will talk about poor white people, poor black people, but they don't talk about the you know going back to my airplane analogy of people fighting over seat space, and it's not the pro the fault of the people, it's the fault of the damn airline. Um, nobody will talk about the fact that the issue should not be white people, black people. It should be poor. It should be exactly. poverty. And I agree with you. There shouldn't and be I poverty. We shouldn't have like poor that. white people. We shouldn't have poor black people. Come on. Okay, back to you, Will. We, got a, right. we have a minute. You're right. The only other thing I was going to say, and then, and then like, uh, and I'm black, so, by the way, I'm, but, uh, and I'll just tell you this. It's just, and then even the, even the, the poor, let's say, and, and I hope I, I don't, I'm not trying to make anybody angry by saying this, but a lot of times, you know, when we live in certain neighborhoods coming up, uh, where you come up in the ghetto or whatever you want to call it, so you get to the point where it's time for you, you get the better job, you move out and you move on. Now, white people, when you, if, if a black person moves into a, a white neighborhood, and those are poor white people, well, that's why they fight so hard, because they think you're going to bring their property values down, you're going to do this and that to the other. The rich white people, they just up and move. They don't care who's moving over there. Oh, here they come. We're gone. But the poor white people, they don't have anywhere to go. So that's why they fight hard. That's why they fight against a lot of integration, but it's still wrong for them to do that instead of trying to be more helpful to the people who move in. But you're, you're making that, uh, my point, Will. It's just like the people on the airplane who are fighting over whether, whether the guy in front of his seat is coming back into your face. You know, the seats should not have been organized to come into your face in the first place. And, in the first place. Yeah. And similarly, you should, we shouldn't have a situation in the United States where, where, where these, where, you know, where housing values or whatever, I mean, you know, fill in the blank, where, where the, these, are, these are structural things. These are, these are not bad people, good people, black people, white people. These are structures that were put into place to maintain racial divisions back, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. And they still are here. And we need to do something about it. Will, thanks so much for the call. It's nice to hear from you. And thanks for listening to us there in Chicago. This is, this is not something that is beyond our ability to solve. But we need people who are willing to actually have an honest conversation about it as opposed to demagogue these issues, which seems to be the entire position of, you know, right-wing hate radio, uh, Fox so-called news, and the Republican Party, and obviously Donald Trump. Oh, my God, the Mexicans are coming to get you. Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.